Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Activist Lawyer. We are joined today by Miri Kitson from the Equality Commission NI. Hi, Miri. Hello, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for coming. You didn't have too far to come today, did you? No, being a, a local Newry person, it was, it was very handy indeed. That's great. Well, we've been looking forward to having you come on for, for some time now, so it's fantastic to have you in the studio. There's lots that we could cover, but um, just with our limited recordings today, we have a few topics to touch on. But just so that everybody's familiar, Mary Kitson is employed by the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland as a senior legal officer. Mary qualified as a solicitor in 1992 and after one year working in a commercial law firm, joined the Fair Employment Commission in 1993. Miri commenced employment with the Equality Commission in 1999. Her role involved providing advice and assistance to people who believe that they have been subjected to unlawful discrimination and to help the Commission choose appropriate cases to support. So welcome again. Thank you, Sarah. So on that, Miri, I mean, you work uh, very prominently in the area of equality and discrimination. What led you to that after, I suppose, having worked in a commercial firm? How did you you get to where you are now? Well, I think anyone born in Northern Ireland uh, during the Troubles really has a commitment and understanding to equality and to human rights. And very much when I studied law, that's what brought me to study law, was the sense of the importance of justice and access to justice Mm -hmm. for everyone in in Northern Ireland. So it was very important for me to practice in an area of law that meant something to me personally. And the Fair Employment Commission uh, in 1993 solely dealt with the issue of religious and political discrimination in Northern Ireland and it was a wonderful time to join that organisation. It had a very, very strong commitment to enforcement of the legislation, a very strong legal department that took cases that established the law and very much gave teeth to the equality legislation Mm -hmm. in relation to religious and political discrimination. So I look back at that time in the Fair Employment Commission as really being a very exciting and dynamic time and a great time to be an equality lawyer and I joined that organisation I had uh, only qualified for a year uh, but I worked with some fantastic people who taught me what equality law could do, the changes that it could deliver and also the idea that the law in itself uh, can't um, deliver change, that you need to work in partnership with local communities, with um, voluntary and community sector to find out what's happening Mm -hmm. on the ground uh, to get those cases to you to make sure that the people who suffer Mm -hmm. disadvantage actually know about you know how to come to you and can access your services and then when you achieve an outcome in in a legal case that there is follow-up action that there's work done with employers or service providers to make sure that the lessons learnt from that case actually result in a change in practice by employers and service providers. So very much that law is only part of a jigsaw Mm -hmm. that can change uh, society. It's an important part of that jigsaw, but it must work in collaboration with other areas. And I feel that's what I learnt most about Mm -hmm. working in the Fair Employment Commission, the importance of 
using all aspects of our resources to make sure the change happened. Fantastic. So you've witnessed and been a part of huge change, I'd say, around um, the particular areas of your work. And just the, the commission itself and your role now, I mean, how, how can someone access support there and how does the commission continue to support um, this work in achieving um, equality in the workplace, for example, but in society in general? Anyone can contact the commission. Mm. Any individual person who feels that they have suffered discrimination they can either pick up the phone, email us, uh, write a letter into us, whatever way they're most comfortable in talking to us and tell us their story. Mm-hmm. If someone feels that they don't want to do that themselves, that they want a, a family member or a, a member of the voluntary and community sector or some sort of advisor, solicitor, anyone at all, trade union official, mm-hmm. representative, they can get them to contact us the commission on their behalf so we're there to listen to anyone who feels that they may have suffered discrimination and they want to have a a chat with us and to see what their rights are what the circumstances were and how they can apply it sometimes um, people think that once you contact the commission that you're on this uh, roller coaster of litigation Mm -hmm. and of taking a case and very much we say to people You come to us, you tell us your story and we can give you advice, but you always remain in control of your own case. Mm -hmm. And if you say, I'm happy with that advice, I don't want to take any action Mm -hmm. or I'm prepared to do some things myself to raise the issue with my employer, with the service provider, we're happy for you to do that. Or if you say, I wish to um, take a case and I wish to further this uh, issue with the commission, you can apply for help with the commi- from mm-hmm. the commission to, to help you to, to um, raise the issue and, and to bring a case. So very much with stress, it is in the power of the individual person okay. to decide what they want to do and coming to the commission doesn't mean that you're on a road of taking a case and the the commission takes over and you lose control. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we we are very much led by the wishes of the individual person. Excellent. So it's not a daunting experience for somebody just to simply reach out for that help. And do do matters that you, you take on have to be of public um, interest or public importance or as you said is it really you know led by the individual in the sense that if it is an issue of let's say sexual harassment Mm. I mean you know and that person wants to take that case forward is there any other way that you choose or does anything else inform your decision to take that case or is it well, we have um, a, a policy, an enforcement policy, or a policy for the provision of advice and assistance, and it sets out the criteria okay. uh, with which we look at all of our applications for assistance. And unfortunately, uh, like all public funded mm-hmm. services, uh, we have a limited budget, sure. so we have to choose carefully which cases we uh, support. Uh, so how we do that is we look at cases and to see what strategic potential they have. And what that means is what change can be affected mm-hmm. through support of that case. How can it raise awareness about the protections of the legislation? How can it change discriminatory practices? How can it offer follow-up by the Commission? Sometimes people think that the Commission will only support cases 
where there is legal uncertainty or a new area of law Mm -hmm. and that's not the case we're there to support strategic litigation and that is about effecting change Mm -hmm. and making people aware of their rights so for example you had mentioned sexual harassment the protection against sexual harassment has been around for many many years but unfortunately it's still the second highest area of sex discrimination calls that come to the commission Mm -hmm. so it's still very important for the commission to take those cases to support those cases and make sure that people realize that sexual harassment is unlawful that women in particular do not have to accept that in the workplace and that they can take action and that strong enforcement action can be taken against employers who fail to protect their staff from sexual harassment. That's great to know. And also then, apart from the legal work um, and the legal support that the Commission provides, um, I know that you do extensive work around training as well and have, you know, a whole bank of resources there too. So can employers and business owners, or do they frequently contact you for, for support, you know, when they feel that they want to maybe improve relations in their workplace, ensure that they're operating under correct procedures and their um, standards are being met? How do you, do you manage that work or balance? that work with the legal support? The legal department in the Commission is actually one of the smallest departments. So the largest resources in the Commission are used to support employers and service providers. And we uh, provide um, model policies for all aspects of equality law. And we deliver training. And increasingly, as a result of COVID, a lot of that training is online. Delivery webinars that employers and service providers can access totally free of charge and can see the guidance that the Commission is offering. We also have a helpline service to employers and service providers. They can ring the Commission or email the Commission or write to the Commission and to seek advice and guidance about how they deliver equality in Northern Ireland. It it is important to note that the legislation only gives the Commission power to assist individuals to bring cases to the uh, courts and to the tribunal. The legislation does not give the Commission power to assist employers or service providers to defend cases brought against them. Sometimes people will say, well, why don't you um, help the employer Mm -hmm. in, in, in defending a case? And what we say is, Our powers come from the legislation and this legislation does not allow us to do that. We can only assist individuals who have experienced discrimination. Fair enough. And in terms of discrimination, are there any areas of work that you you notice are more prevalent than others? I know that you would assist support around disability, um, harassment. What do you see as something that's really prevalent at the moment in Northern Ireland? The most prevalent area of discrimination is disability discrimination. It is the really by far the largest area of complaint uh, to our services, uh, followed closely by sexual discrimination. Um, and then towards the bottom of the areas would be sexual orientation discrimination and age discrimination. But certainly the major area is disability discrimination. And it's both in employment 
and in the provision of goods, facilities and services. And that has been a consistent theme for the past number of years, and not just as a result of COVID. We've certainly seen that disability is the strongest area of complaint. What type of matters, just in general, would that um, would arise from that, Mary? We, we have, in disability discrimination, it's both accessing services so members of the public for example who cannot access services due to perhaps access issues or policies and procedures of of service providers that prevent them from from, uh, attending their the the services that they provide in employment um, the most prevalent area of complaint is actually from people who are in employment we get very few cases actually from people who, who with disabilities who are seeking into employment and who get rejected in their application what we see mostly coming to us is people that are in In employment employment. and are experiencing discrimination in employment in terms particularly of the management of their conditions their their illnesses the support Mm -hmm. that they need from their employers and it can be a bit of a vicious circle that if employers fail to make reasonable adjustments uh, in the working conditions to support the individual with a disability, then often that person can be off on sick leave, then they can be disciplined for their sick leave or be made redundant because of their sick leave and it becomes a vicious uh, circle. Mm -hmm. And I often think that if at the beginning when there were issues in relation to disability were raised, that if an employer and employee sat down and said, look, what are your needs? What can we do to support you? What resources are available? Look to the individual who could maybe help them with their needs, perhaps contacting government organisations or disability-related advisory services and find out what can, can be done, what support is available. And if that was done, that very often a lot of the problems yeah. really would be avoided and and then you wouldn't be in the situation of a person being off on long-term sick mm-hmm. leave, an employer having difficulty managing that sick leave yeah. and really feeling that they're, they're left in a very difficult situation. So for me, it would be at the very point of when, when a person has a disability of talking, having the confidence to know mm-hmm. that they can raise that disability and know that they will be supported. Yeah. And I think especially uh, in relation to the stigma attached to mental health disabilities sure. and people feeling that um, they can't raise it or that they will be thought of as, as a lesser employee mm-hmm. if they do so. So it's very important that you create the right culture that yes. people can come forward and say, I have this disability. These are my needs. What can we do to help? Yeah. And as you say, something as you know, simple as putting that in place at the at the outset and making people feel that they know that they have mm-hmm. that support there and they're not afraid to come kind of can avoid you know this this level of um action or you know even people coming to you for for that type of advice jack you've been looking yourself at the, at the some work, work of the lgbtq the community so i know yourself mary and the commission have worked closely with the lgbtq community <coughs> and i know previously there at the start of the podcast you were talking about working as a collective with other organizations so what work has the Commission done with the LGBTQ community and is, an, is it important that you work with other organisations or representatives of that community? 
It's very important that the Commission works with other representatives from any community, particularly LGBTQ, because we have such low um, numbers in terms of um, people coming forward with inquiries. Uh, and really, uh, for us to understand what's happening on the ground, and therefore, if you have organisations like Rainbow or you have solicitors who perhaps deal with a lot of issues in that area, who know about the Commission and who know that they can come forward to the Commission. And I, I think particularly of Phoenix Law and, and Kieran Moyna, who works uh, in, in Phoenix Law, and the close relationship in terms of being able to discuss any problems that arise and to be able to feel that the Commission is there mm-hmm. as a source of support and guidance so very much uh, important to develop that partnership work um, and for example um, uh, we didn't have the pride parade last year or or, or in 2020 yeah. Yeah, but, but I remember the year before that's right. um, the uh, in the Pride Parade in Belfast, uh, there are lawyers, lawyers for, for Pride, Pride. and <laughs> I was really um, delighted to walk mm-hmm. with those lawyers at uh, at that parade mm-hmm. and to carry a, a, a sign that said "I am your ally" yeah. and that sense of that you're there to support people and uh, and to listen to people and I obviously the case of Gareth Lee against Irish Ashers Bakers yes. Yes. Um, that produced a lot of. Uh, Awareness and interest in the in the issue of um, sexual orientation rights in yeah. Northern Ireland. Great, and I know as well. Obviously, it's not just legal services; it's educational services as well that is provide. And I know that uh, issues with LGBTQ just doesn't happen in the workplace. It also happens in happens in schools. So, do you provide any services for educational purposes for younger people? Yes, we have now um, an education policy person within the Commission and will work closely at reviewing all education policies and procedures Mm. to give guidance to the Education Authority in relation to what should be happening. We also are there to support schools, uh, uh, individual schools, if they have any individual queries. And we work closely with the Children's Law Centre and also with the Children's Commissioner in Northern Ireland. So if there's any issues that we can help and support, support on to be really to be working closely and to be aware of what's happening on Mm -hmm. the ground. That's great. Amiri, how has the Commission's work kind of evolved in these turbulent times that we lived in, not just about COVID and the pandemic, and I'm sure you're going to deal with various issues arising from that within the the workplace. You know, um, we spoke briefly beforehand about maybe mental health issues rising, return to work, all of that, but also in terms of um, workers' rights around Brexit, perhaps, and how how has that changed, or is there any way that the Commission is moving to to kind of keep an eye out for, for issues coming up around um, possible breaches. The Brexit issue is really important for the Commission, um, the Equality Commission, and the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, mm-hmm. and the Irish Equality and Human Rights Commission. Both, or sorry, all of those organisations mm-hmm. have a, a specific mandate to make sure that there's a non-diminution in rights as a result of Brexit. So for example, each of the commissions in Northern Ireland, the Human Rights Commission and the Equality Commission, uh, we have set up a dedicated mechanism within each commission that is specifically tasked to look at uh, Brexit issues 
and the non-diminution of rights. And we have dedicated people who are there specifically for that work. So it's really important that we keep an eye and monitor closely. And there have been publications uh, recently, for example, about what does it mean Mm -hmm. and giving some sort of examples of issues that may arise, Mm -hmm. whether it be in relation to guide dogs um, passing through the border or if there are issues in relation to frontier workers or issues in relation to the uh, employment rights of civil servants in Northern Ireland and the recruitment um, practices in relation to nationality. So I think Mm -hmm. that's certainly an an area of work that will be very closely followed by the commissions and the very um, dedicated resources and also that we are working collaboratively with the Equality Mm -hmm. Commission or with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission and also with the Human Rights Commission in Northern Mm. Ireland. That'll be interesting to see what comes out of that uh, piece of work. And also, so the Commission clearly supports individuals with cases, um, discrimination cases and um, matters of inequality. And these decisions will give confidence to others and will pave the way for real change as well. But some cases have also led to practical changes. And one I'm thinking about is um, the Natasha McNichol case against the Bank of Ireland, where the tribunal, um, with the support of the Equality Commission, had removed an anonymisation order, which I think prevented the naming of both the woman and her employer. That's quite significant, isn't it? And how did the Commission become involved in that? And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that case. Yes, so one of the joys of, of working in strategic litigation is you get to work with some individual people who are truly inspirational. Mm-hmm. And one of those people I, I certainly would identify with is Natasha McNichol. Mm-hmm. So Natasha was a young woman who worked in a bank and she was subjected to uh, sexual harassment in the, in the workplace. And she was very determined that uh, she would establish that she had been treated very badly by her employer and that other women would know that they didn't have to put up with this treatment in the workplace and that they could take action. So Natasha came to the commission uh, and she wanted to bring her case and we supported her in taking her case to the tribunal. Uh, She appeared in the tribunal, gave evidence for several days, was cross-examined by the barrister for the bank and also for the individual uh, man who had sexually harassed her uh, and they were separately legally represented. So she endured two sets of cross-examination and she had a successful outcome, a finding of sexual harassment uh, against her. Um, But one of the disappointing outcomes was that due to the rules of the tribunal that existed at that time, um, both parties, the uh, applicant, uh, Natasha, and also the employer and the named harasser were all anonymised by the tribunal. And that was a result of the old rules that were in place at the time. And Natasha was very unhappy with that. She felt that her voice was being silenced and she she didn't want to be the anonymised person. She felt that she had nothing to uh, be ashamed of and she felt that she shouldn't be hidden away. So she challenged that ruling uh, to the Court of Appeal and the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal were very sympathetic to uh, the situation that she found herself in and referred the matter back to the industrial tribunal and uh, new rules mm-hmm. had been introduced uh, a reform of the rules had been introduced and 
her case then was heard under the new rules in relation solely to the anonymity point. And wow. the, uh, uh, so Natasha could have walked away yeah. when she had her finding of discrimination. Mm-hmm. She had her compensation, the money was paid, but for her, using her voice was really important. So we went back to the tribunal and the tribunal looked at the new rules looked at the really important fundamental principle of open access to justice and justice being transparent and they removed the anonymity order against the Bank of Ireland and Natasha and she was very happy to be able then to step up and to give interviews to the media uh, and to tell her story and to encourage other women to come forward. And I think that really is at the essence of strategic litigation. So you saw someone saying, it's not about the money, it's not about taking the case, it's actually about establishing rights Mm -hmm. and making sure my voice is heard. And especially given the Me Too movement and the importance of all of those gagging clauses and people being silenced and her feeling... I don't want to be silenced and I'm going to tell my story. And she she was very articulate in explaining why she wanted to tell her story. And I recently ran another case in the tribunal, another young woman who had been subjected to horrific sexual harassment by her um, employer. And uh, she too applied to have the anonymity order lifted and she gave evidence to the tribunal about the sense of empowerment Mm -hmm. that it gave her to have her voice heard, to confront the man who had sexually harassed her and to have her name used and she wanted to tell her story. And she talked about the sense of shame Mm-hmm. that she felt as a result of what happened to her and how she felt it was really important to overcome that sense of shame by using her voice. And hopefully she will be able to do that. That's fantastic. So somebody makes an application and is it about balancing the rights of of both parties or how is it more of a sense that it would be granted in those cases or does it just depend on the actual circumstances? This is very new legislation, Mm. so we're really wanting to see how how it works. But the fundamental principle is of open access to justice, but it is of balancing the rights Mm. of all parties. And the the tribunal will hear evidence from the individual, but also from the respondent as to why um, the case should remain anonymised but with the fundamental principle of open justice yeah. being at the heart of it. So I, I, I would hope that women like Natasha and the young woman I, I dealt with yeah. recently, that they will be able to use their voices. Well, she's very brave and has obviously will have made a significant impact on the lives of many mm-hmm. women who I suppose would, would look at that as inspiration and want to tell their story too, or perhaps um, come forward with similar cases. Have you seen, so you were saying that the sexual harassment legislation has been around for a very long time yet we still see issues like this arising has you, have you seen a noticeable shift I suppose in change mm. you know from the very your inception of the beginning of um, your work in this area are you seeing more people speaking out do you notice a shift in in that type of uh, area of work in sexual harassment for example I would have thought at this stage that uh, there wouldn't be so much 
issues about physical sexual yeah. harassment in the workplace and also the growth of social media issues mm-hmm. being involved in the sexual harassment uh, very shocking details of yeah. cases so that to me is so disappointing that even it at is. this stage of the legislation that there are very very graphic cases of sexual wow. harassment uh, and I, I spoke earlier about the uh, recent case I, I, I did and I have other cases and uh, and, and it happens to women mm-hmm. across all areas of employment from professional um, people in employment right through to the young woman working in a corner shop yeah. and it happens to women at all ages of their life as well so it's not just young women but certainly uh, women across all age groups mm-hmm. so that that to me is still that there's so much work to concerning. be done yeah. there's so much work to be done in in the area and that's why as part of strategic litigation to maintain the profile to make sure we tell those stories, to make sure that people are aware that this is what happens and that you have rights Mm -hmm. and also for employers to know that if they don't tackle this issue at the time that it happens, if they don't take uh, steps to make sure that they provide an important culture in their organisation where harassment of any nature is seen as totally unacceptable. An employer does have a defence to any sexual harassment case Mm -hmm. to show that they took all reasonable steps to prevent the harassment. So it's really important that employers adopt policies and procedures and make those policies and procedures living documents that people understand it, that they're trained in it and that they can identify that that's what sexual harassment is and it's totally unacceptable that there's no such defences it's only a bit of fun and it's only Mm -hmm. a bit of banter in the workplace actually it causes long term damage to individuals working in any organisation and it can cause employers a lot of of damage to their reputation and also Mm. the loss of really talented uh, uh, women who could achieve a lot in that workforce. And I I look at Natasha Mm -hmm. McNichol, for example, an exceptionally bright and and capable young woman, and to think that the Bank of Ireland lost uh, an employee who could have delivered so much. Mm. Absolutely. And I like how you say that, you know, policy should be living documents because I'm sure it's all too common that employers feel that they've, you know, the the duty is as long as you have a policy in place there, you've kind of ticked a box and that's it. But there's much more to it than that. They have to be updated. They have to be made known to all employees and there must be proper procedures in place. And as you said, to update it, make it a living document. And I'm sure it is the case that that often doesn't happen where you know training isn't provided etc etc so it's not enough to simply tick a box and say I have a policy in place so really they should seek support around that shouldn't they too and it's very important Mm -hmm. that employers realise that I recently dealt with a case of Siobhan Jacobs against the Yellow Door Portadown Limited and it was a disability discrimination case and Siobhan uh, was a a woman who was a senior events manager uh, for the company and she uh, developed cancer she was off work for some time and she came back to work and she wanted to have reasonable adjustments in the workplace. Um, her working day at times could have been 12 to 14 hours if she was doing events that were very long and, mm-hmm. and a distance away. So she asked her employer 
could I do shorter events? Could I work a sort of an eight-hour day mm-hmm. and not uh, have to do the longer events simply because of um, my disability? I'm recovering from cancer. She produced a letter from her oncologist who supported her need mm-hmm. for reasonable adjustments in the workplace. She uh, contacted Macmillan Cancer Support. They helped her to write a letter uh, to seek those reasonable adjustments. And rather than give her those reasonable adjustments, Siobhan was disciplined and threatened with disciplinary action for failure to follow a reasonable work instruction in that she was saying she couldn't work the very, very long shifts. But when I looked at that case, that employer had endless policies and procedures, (laughs) had very, very detailed policies and procedures in relation to equality and also in relation to how grievances and complaints and disciplinary action should be taken. But those policies weren't followed in the case and Mm. the result of that was Siobhan Jacobs brought her case to the tribunal. After four days of evidence, the respondent, the employer, settled the case and gave Siobhan £40,000 compensation. And Siobhan Jacobs, all she wanted to do was to work shorter shifts. And to me, if a conversation had taken place at the right time to say, you're back at work, what do your what are your needs? Mm-hmm. Have you any medical evidence that supports your needs? What can we do to help? What can and can't you do? If that conversation had taken place, plans had been set in foot, there would have been no need for a very stressful and lengthy yeah. litigation process and a hearing for four days. And then for Siobhan to end up losing her job, mm-hmm. she, she felt she couldn't have continued and she, she resigned from employment. And again, for Siobhan Jacobs, it was about making sure that other people who had cancer knew that they were protected under the disability legislation. Cancer diagnosis uh, results in protection from day one of diagnosis. And that people like Siobhan had rights in the workplace, had a right to be treated fairly and to have their disability factored into all of the decision making about their employment Mm -hmm. and if that had happened, the policies had been followed, Siobhan wouldn't have been been forced out of her job wouldn't have been forced into litigation and the employer wouldn't have had to deal with a very lengthy and expensive set of litigation for all parties. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good to have an insight into the, the lived experience and to see how, you know, an outcome like that is achieved. But you're right, very early intervention can, provi- can prevent um, all of that. Yeah, it's listen to that work. I'm <laughs> inspired and I know a lot of people that will be listening yeah. to this will be inspired to get into to your area of work. So if you could give advice to young people who are starting off in law or young people who have just qualified. Aspiring lawyers. Yeah, aspiring <laughs> lawyers. How to get into your area of work if you want to just give some advice to them. I think uh, equality in human rights law is um, an amazingly inspirational area of work to work in and I feel very privileged to work in that area. What I would say to anyone who wants to uh, follow a career in this type of work is, is to really connect with people who are disadvantaged. And that can be as simple as when you're a law student getting involved in charities that support, for example, disabled people, um, charities that deal with homeless people, 
people who have maybe immigration or asylum issues, uh, domestic abuse issues. There are lots of ways that you can try and connect with people who suffer disadvantage. And the most important uh, skill to me is is about empathy and about mm-hmm. really understanding where people are coming from. And if you can try and get an insight into real disadvantage and to see how it works and how you can help people to maybe raise issues to support them, to navigate their way through systems, public systems in Northern Ireland to make sure that they can access their rights. Now, I appreciate that when many, many students are full-time students but also have jobs and it's very hard to find the time to to do, to get involved mm-hmm. in these issues but even if you could take two hours a month to help somebody to write a letter and um, to attend a meeting to um, give advice on a telephone call to really get to know how disadvantage works at a very fundamental mm-hmm. level and to how you can help people through listening to their story and seeing what rights are available because it is difficult to understand the legislation in Northern Ireland. It's difficult to to understand the case law. We're different from the rest of the United Kingdom in terms of our equality laws and there are so many people out there with unmet need. Uh, One of the biggest difficulties is that legal aid is not available for employment tribunal work so that if an individual doesn't have the money to um, pay a solicitor if they're not a member of a trade union if they don't have a private household insurance policy then where do they go Mm -hmm. Uh, they can come to the commission we don't have the resources to fund every case to support Mm -hmm. every case Uh, and people can end up feeling very isolated and if there were ways through organisations for example like public interest litigation pills, Mm -hmm. CAJ other charity voluntary work and whatever area of law that you're particularly interested in to try and find out um, voluntary and community sector groups that work with those people and if you can connect with those people and try and help them to and it can be as simple as having a conversation and taking the time Mm -hmm. that that can really give you a good basis for understanding disadvantage I always remember um, one of my very first cases in the Fair Employment Commission um, and I uh, it was a redundancy case. A man had been made redundant from shorts and he was a Protestant man. And I read all of the papers and I could see the selection criteria for redundancy and I could see why he had been selected for redundancy. And I met with him and I was going through all of this paperwork and he became very frustrated with me. And he banged the table with both his hands and he leaned forward and he said, you don't understand, love. I was born to work in shorts. And I remember Mm -hmm. very clearly, I didn't understand his perception at that stage. And it really caught me in terms of, yes, I had a legal understanding of what his case was about, 
but until I understood his yeah. thinking mm. and my ability to explain to him what had happened, that I really didn't have the skills mm. uh, to deal with that situation. So I think the more you connect with people, the yeah. more you understand disadvantage, and that's really important mm-hmm. thing to, to, to do for any lawyer, whatever area of work that you want to fall into. Fantastic. So Mary, just obviously the title of our podcast is Activist Lawyers, and it's fantastic that our guests, including yourself, are so passionate and committed uh, within the areas that they work in. What advice do you have in terms of somebody who feels um, that they want to champion a cause, or can you use law as a tool to affect change, in your opinion, and what does activism mean to you in that sense? Activism to me really means affecting change. There's no point in having laws that are in some dusty book somewhere Mm -hmm. that people can't use. And so it's very much about what does it mean for the individual on the street? I remember um, one of our former chief commissioners of the uh, Equality Commission, Bob Collins, when he was leaving the commission, his leaving speech to the staff was always ask yourself how relevant are you Mm -hmm. and to me law is only relevant when people can can let can establish their rights can use their rights and that it it means that they're treated fairly and with uh, equality Uh, and we've seen cases that deliver that change you know very simple cases can deliver Mm -hmm. real change for individuals strategic litigation Uh, can really change people's lives and I think of a very simple example of that is a a case I dealt for a young woman called Sinead Mm -hmm. and she worked in a clothes shop and she was uh, a a full-time worker uh, and uh, she was a supervisor but she went off on maternity leave and when she came back to work it was very much that she couldn't be a supervisor and work part-time. She wanted to reduce her hours because of her childcare mm-hmm. issues. And a simple case like that changed the policy of, the, of that company. Uh, they had to accept that requiring um, women to work full-time to hold a supervisory role was indirectly discriminatory mm. and that that shouldn't happen and that that policy was changed not just in the stores in Northern Ireland but throughout the UK. So those kind of cases can really yeah. change an individual's life but also benefit other people. Fantastic. So we have examples of various cases that people can check out on the Equality Commission NI's website. But it's just been fantastic to have some insight into cases in action and to really hear how something can make real change and to see these outcomes. And Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very today. much, Mary. Thank you very much. It's I really enjoyed talking to you both. Fantastic. It's been great. Great. Thanks, Mary. Thank Talk you. to you soon. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. 
We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.